Welcome back to a special edition of the Off The X Podcast. My name is Cody. I am your host. For those of you that have been listening in for a while, you might know that the mission of this podcast is to share with listeners how the U.S. government protects its diplomats overseas. We've had on diplomatic security special agents, both active and retired, security contractors, Marine security guards, and I will continue to bring that to you. However, every once in a while, you meet someone that has such an impactful and inspiring story that you have to share it. And that's where this episode of the podcast takes us. You might have seen on my social media that after Uvalde shooting, I created a proposal for some government funding, some oversight. I sent it to some congressmen and others. Well, when sharing that proposal, I was fortunate to be connected with today's guest by a supporter. His name is Rob Young. Rob is a police sergeant of the Stockton Unified School District. What you might not know of that school district is that Cleveland Elementary, which resides in it, was the location of one of the first ever active shooter mass casualty events to take place at that school. It happened in 1989. Sergeant Young, known as Rob back then, at the time was a six-year-old boy at that school and on that playground when a madman with an AK-47 opened fire. He was wounded, he survived, he thrived, and he's now returned to the Stockton with a, with a passion and the experience to lead the Stockton Unified School District during a time when these active shooter events are becoming ever more common. In this episode, Sergeant Young shares his journey with us and shares his thoughts on how we can secure our schools in America. Listen in to this amazing dude, this amazing story, and I'll catch you all on the backside. Yeah, glad we got to do it again. Um, I I know, uh, you know, we've talked a couple times now, especially over text and everything. And, and uh, yeah, and uh, we gave this one shot, so we'll go with round two. And uh, I I think we'll have a better experience for the listeners because both of our uh, our mics are working much better. So, yeah, man, if you could, uh, Rob, just tell us a little bit about yourself and and your background. Yeah, so my name my name is Rob Young. I'm a 39 year old uh, police sergeant here in Northern California. I've uh, been in law enforcement for about 18 and a half years. Um, started my career with the Stockton Unified School District as a police officer. We have our own police department for our school district 24-7. Um, you know, and, and uh, I left Stockton Unified uh, for after about f- almost four years on the job. And I went and worked in the Bay Area uh, as a police officer uh, for uh, Union City PD. Worked out there for nine years, did a bunch of stuff out there. And then I returned back uh, to Stockton Unified uh, in 16, uh, 2016 as a police sergeant. And, um, you know, it means a lot to me to be able to work where I work because of, because of my background. You know, you want me to jump into my background now? Like kind of. Yeah. Take it away. Take it away. That's, that's why we're here, man. Yeah, man. So, um, so in 1989, I was a first grade student. I was attending Cleveland elementary school. Um, here in Stockton. And, um, that day, um, I was one of about a thousand students and, um, you know, that, that day we were out on, uh, on the playground for recess and there was a, uh, 27 year old drifter and he had pulled up, you know, 
behind our school and he was able to walk on that campus. He was armed with an AK-47 and a nine millimeter pistol. And uh, he, you know, walked out or, you know, playing on the blacktop, playing on the playground. There's probably probably 400 kids out on the, on the playground at the time. And uh, he took a kneeling stance and, and uh, opened fire on us. And just let loose. Um, you know, and this is this is before really the the term active shooter was was coined. You know, there really was no definition for active shooter. It, it wasn't a common term like it is today. You know, and um, that that morning, man, you know, it, it was insane. You know, this was the first of really the first of its kind uh, for shootings like that. You know, and that morning, uh, like I said, I was the first grass playing kickball uh, that morning, and um, I remember when the, the gunshots started, everybody took off running. And I, I still wasn't registering um, what was really going on. Uh, I just knew that everybody had, you know, fled in different directions. And so I did as everybody else did, you know, and I, and I took off across the blacktop. And um, I was actually probably one of the closest groups to where the gunman was. And he was, like I said, he was kneeling and he was just you know, shooting, shooting at random. And I was probably about 100 yards from my classroom. And my classroom door, the door opened up out to the playground. And it, um, it was like a straight shot from where the gunman was, literally across uh, the playground. And in between where the kickball diamond was in my classroom, there was a, a wooden handball wall, just a freestanding wooden handball wall. And I remember running towards this handball wall and, you know, it was just chaotic, you know, again, not really registering what's going on. I just knew that I needed to, you know, hide. And uh, I, I made it, probably about 10 feet from this handball wall. And, and I, I turned to see where my best friend was, my friend Scotty. And as I turned, I had a round uh, that hit my right foot, the, the, in, you know, the inside of my right foot. And it traveled through, my feet went above my head. And when I hit the ground, another round hit the pavement in front of me. And it lost a lot of velocity, but it lodged itself in, in my chest. I actually have it in my chest to this day. And so I remember uh, kind of laying there and, I remember getting up and kind of bracing myself on the opposite side of this handball wall. And I remember wood just exploding over my head and there's the bullets coming through. Again, it's just plywood, you know, and they talk about cover and concealment. You know, this was concealment at best. There wasn't any type of cover, especially for a 7.62. And they were, he had the steel core round. So you can just imagine the penetration if you know anything about ballistics, you know. And so, uh, I braced myself against this wall and bullets were coming through. And I just, like, again, I remember the wood exploding off my head. And I look up and my classroom door, like I said, the, the door was open. And I remember our, we had a substitute teacher that morning. And she's waiting for, you know, kids to get in the building. Gunman still shooting, um, still in the same spot. And uh, I remember thinking, you know, I got to get to my classroom. And again, you know, being six and a half years old, I had no experience with, with firearms or anything like that other than what's on TV. But, you know, it, it wasn't registering. You know, I just, I just knew I was in danger. And so I remember kind of hobbling and trying to run. My foot felt pretty heavy. I wasn't in a whole lot of pain at, the, at that time. I don't remember being in pain at least. But I remember not 
having full use of my my leg really and uh so i'm hobbling over and, and i get to my classroom and she's telling everybody to get down and uh, i remember going over to my desk and hiding under my desk you know and it was almost it's almost like remember the old earthquake drills that we used to do the duck and cover it's really the only thing we were able to do and i remember everybody screaming and there's blood everywhere you know a lot of people had been hit and the bullets were coming through the wall. I remember like the, the drywall dust kind of floating through the air and the, the sounds of, you know, bullets hitting our desks and everybody's just, you know, screaming. And I remember how loud it was, but how eerily silent it was at the same time. And uh, it felt like the shooting just kept going, you know. In, in reality, it was over in about two and a half minutes. And uh, I remember hearing the last shot. And that was the gunman taking a pistol out, putting it in his mouth as the police were getting on scene. And uh, he, you know, he ended his own life. And after that last shot, I, you know, literally the dust was settling. And uh, looking around, people were crying. And I look up, and my, my friend Scotty, he he actually made it to the classroom, um, and he he scoots over towards me, and. Uh, we kind of sat up and I remember sitting Indian style and I looked down at my, my shoes. Now you got to understand, I come from kind of a poor family, right? And this was January. So Christmas had just passed and I just got these new shoes for Christmas. And I looked down at my right foot and there was a hole on either side and there's blood literally just pulling out of my, my shoe. And it pissed me off that my shoe was like messed up, you know, <laughs> again, it wasn't, wasn't registering that I had been shot. I, I didn't understand why I was bleeding. And I looked down at my chest and there's, you know, blood starting to pour out of my chest a little bit. And um, I look at Scotty and I go, Scotty, look at my shoe. And he says, you know, Robbie, he goes, look at my leg. And he pulls up his pant leg and he had a, he had an entrance wound, you know, good size entrance wound. And then just a big like golf ball size, just hole uh, in his thigh. I remember we're six, six and a half years old, we're little guys, you know? So it was a devastating wound. And I remember seeing just clean through his leg. And uh, that's when he told me, so you know, Robbie, I think, I think we've been shot. And that's really like when the fear started set, settling in, because again, the only thing I knew about guns and people getting shot was what I've seen on TV. And so I'm sitting and I'm trying not to freak out, you know, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely in shock. Um, the pain really hadn't settled, you know, set in yet. And I'm sitting there and, and several minutes went by and I remember the, the first wave of police officers and paramedics entering into our room and they do what paramedics do. You know, they went to work and started triaging us and cutting off our clothes and the logic of a six-year-old, I'm thinking, well, if this, if this is happening, like maybe, maybe if I don't let this happen, it, it, it'll go away, you know? And, I remember the paramedic, you know, he, he grabs me, starts cutting off my clothes and I grab his hand and, and I, I bit his hand, you know, and he jumps up and my kindergarten teacher from the year prior, she's standing over me and she grabs me. I'm screaming, you know, I'm crying. We're trying to stick me with IVs and stuff. She grabs my, my face and she's like, Robbie, they're trying to help you. And I'll never forget. And I always tell this part of the story. Every time I tell this story, a paramedic looked at me. He says, young man, he goes, the fact that you're feeling pain right now, 
and, and you're crying because that means you're alive. Pain is good right now. You're alive because you're going to be okay because I, I need to help you. And then, you know, I think things started switching gears a little bit. And he, he started slowing down and not just going into paramedic mode, but having some compassion and kind of explaining what he's going to do first, you know, and that, that really helped me. And so I laid there and I let him do what he needed to do, you know, and he got the IV started and gave me some morphine. And he was like, yeah, you're going to feel better now, you know, and um, they ended up taking me out to the front yard of the school where they had a, a triage. And I think every, every police officer, every first responder in our county was there, you know, and by this time we, there was helicopters buzzing above us and, um, you know, just everybody there. And they're, they're pulling people out. And, and that day there was 29 students that were shot. Um, there was five kids that lost their life, a, a boy and four girls. There was a teacher that was shot and then the gunman, obviously. And, you know, I, I remember the look of, like, the devastation and the look of confusion, you know, and people just kind of being lost, you know, not, they never, like, our world never really experienced this. You know, this shouldn't have happened. This was a school, right? School shootings, it wasn't a thing back then. And I just, I'll never forget the look on people's faces. Like, you know, what in the world just happened? You know, like, how, how can this be? You know, and the cops, paramedics, everybody just had that same look like, wow, you know, and I, I couldn't even imagine just being in law enforcement now, you know, ever responding to a scene like that. I mean, just, just chaos, but at least we have a little bit more training now, you know, fortunately and unfortunately we have to train for it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. We were talking right before the podcast about how long two and a half minutes might be right yes yeah. you're thinking you know it's two and a half minutes maybe till they got there maybe a little longer um but that's a long time for a kid struggling with with uh, a couple wounds in his body realizing he's just been shot and seeing people panic around him yeah um yeah it, it was a, it was a long time and you know I'll, I'll never forget that fear you know i mean the only like i said the only thing i knew about being shot and people that get shot is what i've seen on tv and and Usually when people get shot, you know, they go blown through a window or whatever, and they die. And, you know, my logic at that time was I, I can't die. You know, my parents aren't here. It wasn't like a fear of death in itself. It was a fear of I'm alone right now. Like, I don't have my, my parents here. My mom's not here. You know, at least I'm, if I'm going to die, like, I'm, like, I want my parents here. Like, they should be here holding my hand, you know. And, it breaks my heart every time I see these shootings, these senseless, you know, acts of violence, man. Because I know that fear, you know, I know what these kids are are going through, and it, it literally it it rips my heart out every time, you know. It's the last thing I want to see, you know. And just it's it's crazy. We we do got to figure this thing out, you know. And I, I don't know. I, mean, I have some ideas, and you and I have talked talked in the past, you know. But I just I don't know. Yeah, we're going to get to those two. I think what we what we both concluded, and I think multi, many people would conclude, is a multi pronged approach, right? Not yeah. there's no one one solution for every every school, every school district, small town America. Uh, police forces they can't afford a lot of training or or a lot of resources, and there's, there's a lot a lot of variables and factors in play. Um, and, and so this was the, 
I hadn't heard of the shooting until I met you. And we were connected by someone, I forget exactly who, on social media. And, uh, you know, we connected instantly and talked and, and, and jumped on the podcast. And, um, and this was a time before social media, obviously, 19, we said 1989, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and, and even media picking something up like this to where it's just spread as wide as you can spread the word these days and with the, the content and people's opinions all over the place. Um, but it's safe to say that. So I, 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 I feel like the first active shooter was the clock tower in Texas that people talk about. Yeah. But is it safe to say that this is the first that, you know, the first active shooter in a school the active the first school shooting. Yeah. yeah it's it, I mean, the, the size and capacity and size and scope, right? Yeah. So, you know, Travis Haley's a good friend of mine you know, from Haley strategics and, you know, he and I, when I, when I was there shooting a podcast there several weeks ago with them, we were looking and, and there's actually been similar attacks back into like the 1700s. Now, not necessarily firearms, but there's been attacks, you know, with groups, with children, you know, involved back. There's documented incidents back in the 1700s. But yeah, it's pretty safe to say, I mean, this was the first attack like this. You know, there had been shootings on campus, obviously, a lot of student-on-student violence. Um, there had been shootings outside of campuses, you know, where students were hit or, you know, faculty was hit. Um, but it wasn't necessarily involved, you know, on the campus other than the campus was there and there was a shooting across the street or something, you know. But as far as I know, it was the, it was the very first or one of the first mass school shootings where an intruder, an adult intruder, heavily armed, entered on to a campus and, you know, shot several people. And, you know, it's crazy. I, I've been obviously, you know, telling my story for over 30 years now, um, but I'm still learning things about this shooting. You know, I just learned a couple of weeks ago that when the gunman entered onto our campus, he had to walk by these portable classrooms and he actually knelt in front of one of the portable classrooms and opened fire on us at recess. But prior to him opening fire, he walked, he, he walked towards one of the portables and, and the portable classrooms at the time, they had that safety glass window, right? Well, the teacher just happened to look out and see, seen this guy in fatigues walking up with the, with an AK in his hand. And it was a, it was a classroom full of deaf kids right and all she can do was turn the light out and she motioned for them she did sign language told them to get down and hide and luckily they did and the gunman actually walked up the ramp looked in the window peered into the window you know and i don't know if the door was locked or unlocked but he didn't enter thank god can you imagine that you know literally fish in a bucket and uh for whatever reason, he, he never made it into the classroom. He just peered in. I, I don't know what he's seen or what he didn't see, but he decided to, you know, leave and, and engage us on the playground. How scary is that? Wow. You know, I just learned that a few weeks ago. I never heard that story. You know, that's so there's so many details, you know. Yeah. And that's the strategy that is still taught now is for people, lock the door, turn out the lights, be quiet. Yeah, and, you know that's almost like the first case study if you if you if you think about it. Um, yeah, you know for her to do that and obviously be successful in saving those kids' lives. Yeah, 
And th- and this shooting, you know, a lot of people, like you said, you never heard of it, you know, and you might have heard of it, you just forgot about it, you know, because a lot of people up until Columbine, when I mentioned Cleveland School, I could be out of state and mention Cleveland School. Oh yeah, I I, I remember that. I remember that, but there's been so many that has happened since then. And, you know, it's been in in the media and stuff, you know, a lot more with these other shootings, but Cleveland school was really ground zero and Cleveland school is actually some of the, because of the shooting was ground zero for a lot of the assault weapon bans that are in place now. So if you look up Roberti Ruse, you know, uh, you'll see the first national assault weapon ban, a California assault weapon ban was 1989. Yeah. So the, the case is still talked about. I've, I've testified in legislative hearings in California. I've also been on Capitol Hill, you know, and got to tell my story in front of Congress and Senate there. And, uh, you know, they, they still cite the Cleveland, the Stockton school yard massacre and a lot of legislative hearings. You had mentioned that, uh, you know, the guy came on and, you know, I think he said took a knee by the portable classroom. But and when we first tried to do this, we, you know, the second time I hear the story much more clearly now this time, um, you had mentioned that something about a gate being locked or a gate was supposed to be locked. Can you, can you yeah. elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So again, you know, um, it was the, the 10 year anniversary. I, I heard this part of the story. So on the 10 year anniversary, it was our first public get together. Um, corporate gathering, you know, with a lot of the victims and some of the teachers and some of the first responders. And, and, um, we actually, you know, we met and we had a a service basically. And, you know, we honored the fallen victims, the people that didn't make it. And, and I had a moment of silence and they actually asked me to share. And I, and I came up, you know, and I was talking and this gentleman walks up to me after and he, he had tears in his eyes and he was a facilities worker. He worked at the courtyard for the school district and he comes up to me and he, and he said, um, he goes, you know, the, the gate that you're talking about, because let me back up that morning when I got to school, I walked through this back gate. This, it was really just a pass through. It was a cyclone fence and it was a pole and a pole. There was no swinging gate. Right. And that's the same way that the gunman entered. Okay. So Fast forward to the 10 year uh, anniversary, this gentleman walks up and he says, you know, you talk about that pass through, you talk about walking through that gate. He says, I'm the one that installed that locking gate uh, the day after the shooting. And with tears in his eyes, his lips quivering, you know, and he, he said, I, I still struggle. I'm, he goes, I, I still struggle with this. Uh, he goes, when I went and picked up the gate, he said there was a note that was zip tied to it. And the note said, when ordered, November of 1988. When delivered, December of 1988. When installed, January 18th, 1989. When needed, yesterday. And he goes, I'll never forget that. And he, he said he kept the note for several years, but had misplaced it, you know, but. He said, man, he goes, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And he was the one that went and installed that, that locking gate. Have you had um, any contact over the years with uh, your classmates' families? And do you guys stay in touch? And what's, what's, what's that like? Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's several of us that remained in school 
together. Uh, you know, I talk about my friend Scotty, you know, that had that devastating leg injury. And uh, like I said, you know, the shooting happened when we were in first grade and he had surgeries all the way up to our junior year in high school. So I went to junior high with them. I went to high school with them. I was always real protective of them. Uh, Scotty walked with a limp, a, a pretty severe limp for, for many, many years. And um, for a long time after the shooting, he actually had to wear a contraption a lot like, you know, you, sort of, you ever see the movie Forrest Gump? Remember that metal contraption that he had? Well, Scotty had one very similar because he had such devastating wounds and tendons were, you know, torn and mus he was missing muscle and, you know, he, he had a lot of issues. But thankfully, our junior year, he had his last surgery that I know of. And uh, he actually walked across the stage when we graduated, you know, normal. And I was super proud of him. So I, I keep in touch with him every now and then. You know, I wish we were closer, but life's just kind of taking us apart. Uh, but I have his number, you know, and I do call him and check on him every now and then. Uh, I'll run into him, you know, here and there. Um, my friend Sarah, we're friends on Facebook. She has a family now. She and I were in the same hospital room together. Um, she was shot, I believe, in the stomach, if I remember correctly. Um, there's a few. You know, there's actually a pretty cool story. Uh, when I was loaded into the ambulance that day, there was another young boy named Ben Potap. And Ben was also shot in the foot. Uh, wasn't quite as severe as, as my wound. Uh, if I remember correctly, you know, he, we got to the hospital. He was actually discharged that later that night, but we rode to the hospital together. I was in the hospital for three days. Um, Ben, the following year, moved away. He moved way up to Northern California, a little town called Alturas, up in um, Modoc County, up by the Oregon border. And I, I, you know, we were close after the shooting. I used to spend the night at his house and everything else, but when he moved away, I just lost touch. You know, this is before social media and you know, we didn't have cell phones or anything like that. Um, I didn't hear from him for years. And when I came back to the school district PD as a, as a sergeant in 2016, I was working on a documentary, still working on a documentary. Um, I wanted to find Ben and I started doing searches for him. And when I Googled his name, his mother's obituary showed up and I saw that she had passed away and survived by you know, Ben Potap and Jennifer Potap, you know, his wife. And uh, so I, go on social media and I search his name, nothing. I search his wife's name and I find his wife's Facebook and I see, you know, I see a picture of both of them. I'm like, I haven't seen this guy in 30 years. I'm like, that looks like him, you know? So I shot her a message. Well, she's one of those that doesn't really check her messages, you know, very often. So it took about a month. And I remember sitting at my desk, still hadn't heard anything. And my, my phone rings one day and I look and it's Alters, California. And I, I pick up the phone and again, I'm at work, I'm on duty, right? I pick up the phone and, and uh, I go, hello? He goes, Robbie? I said, you call me Robbie, you know me for a long time, right? And I said, Ben Potap. And he goes, what's up, bro? How you doing, man? And again, we hadn't talked for 30 years, you know? And so uh, I had a big old smile on my face, man. I remember being you know, so excited to hear from him. And he heard my radio go off, my police radio. He goes, is that a police radio? I said, yeah. I said, are you a cop? I said, yeah. He goes, huh, 
so am I. <laughs> so it's pretty cool. He actually worked uh, he's a, like a custody deputy for the sheriff's office where he was. He was a corporal. And, and uh, we actually ended up meeting up, you know, about a month later. He was doing some training down in Sacramento. And I went up and, and met him and went to dinner with him. And we stayed in touch. I actually talked to him just a couple weeks ago. Oh, that's cool, man. I actually, uh, yeah. I, 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 as we go through the story, I have this other computer right here. You might see me, you know, I write down some, some things that pop up. And I wondered if, if any others in your school, whether from your class or a grades above, you know, impacts everyone, right? If anyone else yeah. came into law enforcement and, and you just kind of answered that for me. Yeah. Yeah. He, he went in, uh, he has since medically retired. I just found that out. Uh, but he served several years and he worked custody division. Um, but yeah, so as far as I know, it, uh, it was me and him that, you know, went to law enforcement. There was another guy, Brandon Smith, uh, he's a paramedic for AMR. Um, I'm going to be interviewing him here pretty soon on my podcast. It's going to be launching here soon. So looking forward to that. We went to high school together. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah right on. Um, you know, we're going to have a good bit of law enforcement folks, aspiring law enforcement folks that listen to this. Um, but a lot of parents in general, I'm a parent, you're a parent. Um, you had mentioned the first time, uh, kind of your mom's story. Uh, and by that, I mean the day that happened and the intuition that she had, would you, would you mind sharing that again? Yeah. So that morning, uh, we, so at the time we lived about seven or eight blocks from the campus. And again, you know, we, we didn't have much money back then. The only car we had, my dad had, you know, he worked several miles away. So he, he drove. At the time, my mom was working at one of the medical centers nearby, and it was close enough for her to walk. And um, yeah, that morning, she walked me to school, and I remember her telling me, she's like, you know, I, I just I have a bad feeling about today. I just don't want to send you to school. She really had no reason not to. And, you know, there was no, nobody to babysit. And I was, I was looking forward to going to school. Like I said, I was looking forward to kickball. You know, that was, that was my agenda that day. It was, you know, I, I enjoyed going to school. I enjoyed playing with my friends and, you know, I, I loved it. And, um, but I remember her telling me several times, I just, I don't have a good feeling about this. She just had a gut feeling. And she, I remember getting to that, that pass through that gate and, you know, hugged her and she kissed me on my forehead and she just she just couldn't shake it you know and I remember it clear as day and uh to this day she still remembers it and you know she kissed me on my forehead and off I went and off she went and you know that that's a story in itself you know she worked at the medical center just two miles from the school and she worked in the cancer unit at the time and, and she had just got done wheeling a patient to the classroom or to the you know, hospital room and she gets you know pulled aside and somebody asked her, did you hear about the, the shooting in Cleveland? And she's like in Cleveland, Ohio, and she's like, No, what's up? And they said, Yeah, we're getting a bunch of kids from the school down the street. There was a school shooting. And she, the the person telling her this one of her coworkers didn't realize that she had a son that went to that school. And my mom just started freaking out, you know, she's like, what do you mean? There was a shooting, you know? Like, yeah. We're, we're getting a bunch of kids in and, and there was a, there was something happened. I mean, they were, they were just getting details. And, uh, 
she turned around and she started making her way over towards the nursing station. And right as she gets there, her boss came out and said, Brenda, we need to talk to you. You know, there's, there's a phone call for you. And what it was, was the nurse at the hospital where they took me, which is the next town up in Lodi, had called, you know, to get a hold of my mom. My mom answered the phone and, and the lady on the, the other end says, hey, you know, you need to get to Lodi. We have your son. He's been injured. And she said, is my son alive? And the nurse told her, you know, we can't tell you that over the phone. We just need you to get here. And she's like, I need to know if my son's alive. And she's like, you're going to tell me. And the lady said, all I can say is that he's alert and he's asking for you. So, you know, luckily my mom's boss, you know, loaded her up and drove her to Lodi and my dad was already, he had already gotten the phone call too and he was en route and they get to the hospital, you know, and that was good for me because I, I remember being in the trauma room, seeing both my parents, you know, come in. I, I, I really knew I was going to be okay then, you know, having them there with me. But yeah, my mom had a, a, a gut feeling, just couldn't, couldn't understand why she did. Yeah. It's a heartbreaking story for a parent to, to hear that about their child, right? And obviously for you to go through it. Um, what happened, uh, what changes were made after that at your school, maybe at your school or your school district? Were there any changes made and, and, and what was the, the process after that? You know, again, so you hear about these school shootings that happen, like, um, you know, Parkland and, and, um, you know, these different elementary schools. I heard they're, you know, Uvalde just happened and somebody told me they're going to be tearing that school down. Um, the one in Connecticut, I'm drawing a blank right now. Um, Newtown, right? Newtown. You know, they tore that school down like that week. And I, and I get it. Cleveland didn't do that. Cleveland, the principal of Cleveland school, she made the decision uh, to, to open the school the next day. And there wasn't a whole lot of kids that showed up. There was a few, but they, the maintenance workers worked through the night, you know, to, to patch up the holes and, you know, clean up the blood and, you know, it was a mess, you know, and they did, they worked through the night, they brought in everybody extra help and they got it all cleaned up. Um, really not a whole lot of security measures, man, to be honest with you. You know, uh, I remember a, a police presence being pretty heavy on campus there for probably the next year. Um, but again, this was unprecedented. You know, there, there wasn't a whole lot of, uh, knowledge on what to do. And I think it was one of those things where it was like, it'll never happen again. You know, I kind of get that feeling looking back on it. You know, I, I don't know, really, I wasn't involved in any of the talks, you know, but there was just a, a heavy law enforcement presence in around our school for a long time, you know, and school wasn't the same, you know, I mean, I was looking forward to going back. I was, I was away for about two or three months. You know, I came back and they had counselors on, you know, on campus and we had, you know, what we call the breakfast club. You know, a lot of the, the kids that were shot and that survived, you know, they, they would have us meet once a week with, you know, psychologists psychologists and psychiatrists. And, um, you know, met every day on, or every week on Tuesdays. Um, but really as far as like safety measures and stuff, you know, didn't really think about it back then, but 
I shake my head now because it wasn't until about five, six, seven years ago that they actually put up a security fence out front. You know, it's just crazy to me. Yeah. And you're talking 25 years later. That's, that's insane. You know, uh, the district's doing a lot now, especially with everything that's been going on nationally. Uh, they've taken a lot of steps to secure a lot of our schools. But there's still a lot of holes, man. You know, a lot of things that we need to do. Yeah. And let's, let's shift gears then. Cause that's something else I yeah. want to talk about. You, you're, you're a, a sergeant in your, your uh, school district police, but you, you're, a, you, you do a lot of other things. And one of those is train for active shooter. You're, you're, yeah. I think what, by every sense of the words and uh, by every sense of the word an expert, um, what are some of the things you guys are doing now, whether it's uh, within your district or training with others, what are you, what are you guys doing to, uh, you know, to train for this? Yeah. So, um, when I was working for union city, um, one of my lieutenants, um, came up to me and was like, you know, Rob, you, you know, I know your story. And I was actually a school resource officer for, for my department out there too. Um, I've always had a knack for protecting schools, man. Even when I was, when I was a city cop, you know, and he came up to me and said, Hey man, you're an SRO. He said, one of the things I want to do for the SROs, I actually want to send, uh, the SROs to active shooter response instructor course. Uh, he goes, for one, it'll make you a better cop, you know, should the, the time call for you to, you know, have to respond to something like that. But he's like, I think that that's your knack, man. I've watched you and talking with you and let's get you certified. And I said, awesome. You know? And so when I came back to the district, uh, one of the things that I told the chief was, uh, you know, I want to really step up our game, you know, with active shooter drills. And our district's pretty big. I mean, we have, I want to say 55 schools, you know, just within Stockton Unified, and we're one of four districts in Stockton. So there's a lot of schools. It's a big area. Um, but I was able to come back, and luckily there was already a big exercise that was being planned, and they brought me into the cadre, you know, to to really kind of plan this thing. And uh, One of the first trainings that we did was actually at the university here in town. And we invited everybody. It was, you know, Stockton's pretty unique. We have several different law enforcement agencies. You know, we have the Port PD. We have, you know, the city cops, school district police, community college police, university police, CHP. Um, what did I say? Sheriff's office. I and mean, we, we got a lot of law enforcement agencies. And, you know, Stockton Fire is a big agency. AMR is a big ambulance company out here. Uh, but there's a lot of smaller, even county fire departments and, you know, even in our county, you know, that that's just, I'm just talking about Stockton, you know, we invited everybody in the county to, to come, you know, take part in this. And we had uh, over a hundred uh, victims, you know, role players that came in and we brought in Hollywood makeup artists to come and do moulage and you know, put bullet wounds on people. And what we wanted to do is really test the initial response to an active shooter. Um, and the integration of, you know, rescue task force and contact teams throughout the, the different law enforcement agencies. And then, you know, with the rescue task force implementing paramedics that go in with the protection detail, you know, with them, a force, force team, uh, force on force team protecting these paramedics to help get these, you know, wounded out. 
while the situation is still unfolding, you know, while the other contact teams are moving forward and having to walk over victims to get towards a suspect um, or suspects. And, you know, we, we take it a step further after we neutralize the threat. Um, we work with these ambulance companies and fire departments to say, okay, we're not really going to transport them, but we're going to transport them. You know, and I think that first one, we had like 117 casualties. Some were critical, some were walking wounded, you know, how are we getting them there and running real time scenarios. So we might've had, you know, 35 ambulances assigned to this, this training incident, but you know, in real time, AMR, you guys still have to run the County and how are you getting this 117, you know, casualties to hospitals and what hospitals are they going to? So we would then work with OES, you know, to figure out, you know, do we have beds at the trauma center that are open right now in real time? And we contact the hospitals and say, okay, this is pop quiz and you got to run your hospitals in real time and real life. But we would have so many coming there. Do you have enough, you know, enough blood on hand, enough trauma teams and test that whole gamut. Right. And then afterwards we'd also work with the school, with the university, they're doing reunification and, you know, notifications and, and doing their part. Right. We tested the full aspect of, of, you know, an incident like this and identified a lot of holes, man. You know, we identified a lot of weaknesses, but we had a lot of strengths too. You know, and luckily our teams worked really well together and it, it built some camaraderie and some agencies had never worked together and, you know, which is a shame, but that's getting better. And, uh, you know, it, it was interesting to, to watch, you know, and if we're going to mess up, we want to mess up in something, a training environment like that, right? But we made it as real as possible. Yeah, I was going to say that. I think, I think a lot of people, I, mean, I think it's just human nature is that, you know, your organization participate, you know, you want to get training, but if, if you run a drill, you got to start somewhere. You run a drill and your response time is awful. Your people are all over the place. You don't, you don't look very good. That's kind of the point of it to see yeah. where those gaps are, where those issues are, and at which point you begin to address that. Now you have a baseline and you grow. Yeah. That. Um, and that sounds what you guys did sounds like really obviously extremely detailed. And, you know, you have every, pretty much every entity that you could have that would be responsible and, and, yeah. and would respond to, you know, an active shooter um, situation. And, and did you say that uh, with the, so my understanding is, is most places and when well, I say most, some places, uh, you know, medics won't come in if there's still an active threat. And we're, did you say that the, the way you guys are working it or is like once they clear a particular area and move beyond that threat that the medics will come in? Uh, yeah. To, so think of a phase line or something like that. So the way, the way it should work is, you know, law enforcement gets on scene and, and you have your initial contact team. And, and the way I train my guys, I'm like, hey, listen, if the, if the shooter is still active, you know, there's still shots going on, you need to move towards that sound of gunfire. And you're going to have to step over victims, right? And it's going to be crazy because the victims will be like, help me, help me, help me. If you have to punch some victim in the face to get them off you so you can move towards that suspect, of course, you got to do what you got to do. And I'm not... I'm not advocating for that, but I'm saying, you know, you have to do what you got to do because you're there to stop the threat, right? So we'll put together a team, a contact team, and that contact team can be one officer. That's the reality of this, right? And so, you know, I don't want to get off topic, but, you know, our Monday morning quarterback, the Texas incident, but I saw a lot of things that I didn't like, right? 
So that contact team could be one or more officers that has to step over bodies to move towards that sound of gunfire. Because it's our job as police officers to take fire if it means that students and innocent people aren't taking fire, right? That's something that I put in my head when I go to work every day going, this is a possibility. I may have to do that. I may have to be that person. And I'd rather the gunman shoot at somebody like me versus some kid or some student, you know, or some faculty member who's helpless and can't fight back, right? So you have your contact team and then you have your rescue task force. And what we're implementing now is, yeah, there's there's medics that go in to uh, what we call plug and pull, you know, uh, put on tourniquets, do whatever they need to do to get that the wounded out. And so we'll give a protection detail to these medics and they're so they should be following, loosely following the contact team. And, you know, it could be a medic and three to four officers, five officers, you know, and the, those officers, their job is to protect that medic. And they may end up becoming a contact team at some point, but those medics know they, you know, they have to go in and pull these guys out, you know, to safety, you know, because I mean, seconds matter, minutes matter. I mean, you know, you've got combat experience and tactical experience and, you know, when you're bleeding out, man, you're bleeding out, you need help. You know, and then what we'll do, too, is we'll put together a, a third team, a search team that can do more of a methodical search. Because that contact team, when they're going towards the sound of gunfire, they're moving fast, right? The, the search teams are, you know, searching closets, making sure, because we have to check, you know, it could be somebody that's hurt and bleeding out in some closet that's trying to hide. And now they're bleeding out, you know, or there could be other threats. You know, there's been incidents like in Columbine where they were finding IEDs. You know, and those guys are kind of slowing it down a little bit and searching more methodically. But yeah, those are really the three main teams. And so after this incident at the university, our fire department, um, they started implementing uh, body armor. They started issuing body armor to some of their medics. So. You brought up the Uvalde shooting, and I, and I don't know if you want to critique maybe is not the word but what are your thoughts that video just came out um i, I can kind of imagine what your thoughts are on, on on what happened but would you be interested in sharing some of your thoughts uh from at least from what you can tell from sure from the video so you got to understand, man, I've been telling my story for years. So, you know, and I've gotten to tell it nationally. So a lot of people know my story and, I, and I've made some good contacts. And I, my phone that day, man, was blowing up. Every time a, an active shooter happens, you know, I'm getting texts and phone calls. And, hey, what do you think about this? And I've been real slow to speak on this one. Um, for one, it's been a very busy season for me, right? So I haven't really had the time that I wanted that I usually have to dedicate to researching this a little bit. Um, two, I, I've spoken out of turn in the past, you know, and had to go back and apologize and kind of bite my lip. So I bit my lip on this one a little bit, but I'll tell you something, man, watching the videos, and I, and I actually just watched the surveillance video last night. So that's how fresh it is in my mind. But hearing the numbers, hearing the minutes that it took for the first team, for officers to actually go in and engage that guy, I, I started hearing that right away and I shook my head, you know, it shouldn't take, it shouldn't take cops 77 minutes to, to enter into 
the arena where the shooter is. That's on that's we don't do that. You know, and, and I hear, you know, the, the police chief there talking about, well, yeah, it was a barricaded suspect. No, it's not. It's an active shooter. Right. So for the listeners, we train differently for active shooters. An active shooter is a term active killing. It doesn't have to be an actual gun involved. When I say active shooter, our response changes. Somebody who's actively killing can be with a sword, could be with a firearm. The way we train and the way we should be going is we go, we engage that threat right away. And like I mentioned just a few minutes ago, that contact team, that's essential. And it could be the first officer on scene. You know, you don't wait. We learned a lot of lessons from Columbine. It was like 44 minutes or something like that, right? Before the first officers entered that building to, to engage those gunmen there. So with, when I hear Evaldi, and I hear 77 minutes, it's horrible, you know? And again, you know, I watched an, an edited version of the surveillance video. I haven't watched it in, in its entirety, but um, the, the parts that I did see, you know, I see officers trying to move forward, trying to move down this hallway and they're hearing shots and then they're taking cover. You know, and I see a lot of officers hanging out behind a wall and not running towards the sound of gunfire. Where are you at? You're at a school. Who is he shooting at? You know, I'm sorry. Get your butts up there. Do your job. And if that means you're taking rounds, I'm sorry. That's your job. But you engage. And they had enough firepower there. First person goes down. Second person engages. Second person goes down. Third person needs to engage. And you engage until that threat is done. You know, and, and I've, again, I've told my guys, man, if you don't, if you don't do a gut check, and you don't have what it takes, you should probably log off and go home. You know, I, I, to be a cop nowadays, man, you have to really flip that switch. And I do know what it's like to run towards gunfire. I've done it. I've been involved in officer-involved shootings. I was involved in officer-involved shooting in 2013 where I did just that. I ran towards the sound of gunfire and getting in a gunfight, you know. And luckily, I, I made it home. The suspect didn't. I was one of six officers open fire and killed a guy. You know, it was an active shooter. I was walking through a neighborhood with a 45 and a machete, shooting a passing motorist. You know, we engage them. Luckily, nobody innocent got hurt that day. But I do know what it's like to go through that. And I'm not, I say that very humbly. And I say that, I hope I never have to do that again. But I'll do it every day if I have to. That's my job. That's what I signed up to do. You know? Yeah, I've had people on my social media ask, hey, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. And there's a lot of thoughts from a number of different angles. I'm no active shooter expert. Um, uh, like some of you that, that live the, you know, the, the, the life of training daily, nearly, nearly daily for active shooters, but you know, I have a security safety law enforcement background and protection. Um, and the one thing that stood out the most is, is well, exactly what you're saying is you, you raise your right hand to serve. Yeah. Um, that with that comes, uh, potential times where you could put your, where you might need to put yourself in danger. And, and, uh, and that was one that could not have been more important to finally yeah. do that. And, and what I've learned, and I'm from a small town, Louisiana, where there's not a big budget for cops. There's not, they don't pay cops much. Cops are quitting left and right. A lot of towns are having those issues, yeah. but a lot of people want to play cop 
because you get to carry a gun, you get to carry a badge. Um, and, and this is not, I, I, I rarely I, I, I support cops. I'm not knocking yeah. from law enforcement. It happens in the military. It happens in federal law enforcement. It happens everywhere. But a lot of people like the uh, prestige that comes with maybe being a cop or, you know, uh, the job is exciting in itself. But when the time comes, um, that person they thought they would be, they aren't. And, right. um, and it, it, uh, it was that it was apparent to me in that video that that's what those were. Uvalde is a small town. It sounds like smallish town. Mm-hmm. Um, those guys, um, respectfully, uh, did, did not look, pre- look prepared, act prepared, no. act like they knew what they were doing. They had no self-confidence. Um, and, uh, you saw, you know, a few of them move towards the threat. They, they ran away. Look, I get it if you want to regroup, but regroup and get back in there. Um, yeah, dynamically. And, yeah, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was rough. And again, I, I was I was like you, and I, and I try not to because I was not a local cop. I was not. I'm gonna say a local cop. I was not a uniformed officer, right? So I I really hold back on some of these types of things. But I have thoughts because I've been in 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 hostile situations. I've I've, I've been in these types of of. Uh, of situations where you have to move towards the fucking threat. Yeah. And so that, so that, so not in that capacity, but you, but you have to, and that, and that, and that bothered me a bit. Um, and so anyway, thanks, thanks for sharing, for sharing that. Yeah. And, and, and you know, man, I, I don't know who's going to hear this, you know, and again, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't want to just, you know, talk crap, you know, I, my heart goes out to everybody involved in that. It really does. It, it, that's, that's a, that's a scary, that's the scariest thing you can go through. I get it. You know, when I got in my shooting in 2013, man, I, I actually said out loud, I don't want to be here. I actually said it. Half a second later, I'm pulling the trigger six times, you know, and I know that fear, right? But you really do. If you're in law enforcement, man, you really got to ask yourself, do I have what it takes? Because we need people that have that mental fortitude to run towards the sound of gunfire, think towards the sound of gunfire, move towards the sound of gunfire, go. You can't, they're, they're innocent. And talk about schools, there's kids being murdered. You have to stop that. And there's a chance, and we all know it, you strap on that gun, you strap on a badge, you put on a gun belt, you go to work, there's a chance you're not going to come home. That's the reality of it. You know, I, I do everything I can every day to come home, you know, and I was talking with, again, talking with Travis, you know, you hear this, these cops say, you know, it's our duty to get home to our families. Is it? That's a luxury. Like, I hope you get home to your family. Yeah, you got to do what you have to do. You know, your job is to stop that threat at all costs. You are 911. You are, you are the help. We don't wait for SWAT and something like that. You go. You know, it's it's one of the few types of calls that you don't have that luxury to sit and wait. You know, now if it's an isolated hostage situation or something like that that wasn't an active shooter, yeah, okay, our response is a little, little bit different. But somebody who's actively killing, game on. You know. Especially when it's kids. I mean, every every, every yeah, life every, every life matters, but especially when it's kids. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Yeah, it doesn't matter if it's a school or a mall or a college or a hospital. You know, we, we train for these. You know, and and you know, I, I train in the private sector too. I, I I'm a partner in a company where we put on you know active shooter response for civilians, and you know, we we tell them the same thing. I mean, their obviously their responsibility is a little different. You know, I'm not telling them to you know run or you know think towards the side of gunfire. But you gotta think, right? You gotta run, hide, fight. You know, we teach the Alice model, and you do what you gotta do to survive that incident. You know, and our main thing there is really teaching stop the bleed and you know some ways to to combat you know the shooter, but yeah, it's a little different. But I mean, this is something I dedicated my life to. You know, something I'm very passionate about. And, you know, I, I don't know how else to get back. I mean, it's just what I know. Yeah. You had, uh, you had asked me in our first conversation, what, why, what, why did I take up this cause and, or not say cause, but why was I so passionate about it when we talked? And I, I be honest, I just recently became passionate about it. And, and that sounds very insensitive, but I'd never had kids before, right. Before a few years ago. And, and my, my son was born. Um, I married a wife with a, with a child and, and this one for me hit home you know, and, and, uh, you and I exchanged ideas. Uh, you know, I, I put up a proposal that I've been sharing still far and wide and, you know, to, to, to what I think can, can, can be done. Um, and like, like we said earlier, there's no one size fits all solution, but what do you think are, I mean, we, you talked about the training already, law enforcement training, getting all entities involved. Uh, give us some other ideas that you have that could, uh, you know, support this endeavor to, keep schools more safe yeah absolutely you know it, it's everybody's responsibility you know a few years back i i wrote a short little article for uh, campus safety magazine and um you know i've been able to share my story at their conferences and stuff and you know and i talked about whose responsibility is it you know should should you find yourself as a teacher as a janitor as a counselor you know in a situation like that, whose responsibility is for safety? It's everybody's, right? And, you know, again, there's no fix-all. There's no absolute. Every incident is different. Um, You know, I've testified, again, in several Senate committee hearings and uh, got to introduce a bill in Washington, D.C. several years back. And that bill would have allowed school district officials, school district employees who carry CCW, who have already been vetted, who carry out in the public and grocery stores and banks, whatever, that just happen to work at a, at a school to be able to, to carry that weapon concealed on campus. I'm not saying that I think that you get a teaching credential and we hand you a Glock and say, go teach our kids. But, you know, there's several people like yourself who I would trust, you know, somebody with the training if I got out of law enforcement today and I wanted to go teach, why couldn't I carry my gun? Right. But the, the, the laws in many States and many school districts don't allow it. The policies don't allow it here in California. State law doesn't allow it. You know, I, I've told this story several times. I, I have a buddy who served over 30 years in law enforcement here, here in my hometown. And I actually worked with him. He was a Sergeant for two, two different agencies, right. For probably half his career worked for the DA's office as a, an investigator, sworn investigator, over 30 years in law enforcement, gets out of law enforcement. And the first couple months that he retires, he is a full-time substitute teacher 
in the same school district where he was a sergeant as a police officer and, and was also a sergeant with the sheriff's office. He couldn't carry his gun. And this is a guy six months prior to this, if an active shooter or some emergency happened on campus and somebody called 911, he was expected to go. That was his job. Now, now he's teaching kids and why can't he carry his gun on campus? Right? So there's several people, military backgrounds, normal citizens that, you know, own firearms and train firearms. A lot of guys out there that have done a lot of training and have the mental fortitude to engage somebody, you know, on campus who's shooting our kids, right? We've had a lot of teachers and stuff that did what they could to protect our children and sucked up bullets. I don't want to see that happen. I want to give them a fighting chance. And these are people that, you know, hopefully would stop the threat. Obviously, let the police do what we got to do when we get on scene. But you may you may need to hold the fort down for a few minutes. You know, I tell I just told my story about Cleveland schools over in two and a half, three minutes. Twenty nine people were shot, five were killed, and the gunman was dead as the police officers got on scene. Right? We talk about average response times in America, four to six minutes. Right, and that's in big cities. I've worked as an SRO on campuses that were 64 and a half acres. I was the only cop on campus. If I'm at corner X and gunman enters on corner A and I'm running, it's going to be a few minutes. Right? By the time I catch up to them, do a lot of, a lot of things. These are people that could be on, you know, a, a counselor, a, a, a teacher, somebody who maybe has a gun on their hip that can stop these people. Right? Seconds matter. You know, and again, it's not a fix-all, but I think that's a big one that, that we could legislate into action. You know, why can't these people do this? If they get some extra training, I'm not saying they make it mandatory, but if they want to, why can't they? You know, and that's just one of many ideas. You know, we need to do a better job fortifying our schools. And you know, say, oh, we don't want our schools looking like a prison. Okay, it doesn't have to be a prison. You go to the White House, very beautiful grounds. It's very secure. You know, um, there's a lot of buildings. I mean, you, you worked overseas doing contract work and everything else, right? Beautiful buildings that you probably worked out of that were super secure, right? We can do a better job. You control, you know, the ingress and egress of every campus. It should be funneled. Yeah, you need emergency exits, and yeah, there's always going to be holes or whatever, but we can do a better job securing our campuses. But we don't. Yeah. yeah, I'm in. I'm in your camp, man. With uh, with uh, you know, there are people, even law enforcement officers, I know, said, "No, we shouldn't be arming teachers." And look, I mean, you said it yourself. We're not just going to give you a gun, and we're not saying every teacher has to do it. People that want to do it, and there should be a vetting process and training. Right. And, 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 and continuous training, not just train one time. And, you know, you hear excuses from, uh, well, teachers are, are there to teach, not to shoot. Okay, fine. Uh, but if they want to do both, if they want to uh, help protect the ch children that they obviously care about, because I think a lot of teachers do care, and that's, that's you know, that's, that they're there for that. They, I've heard the, well, you know, what if there's a negligent discharge or they, they don't secure their weapon properly? You know, you can what if it to death, but... How right. many how many NDs have you seen 
you know, with CCW holders or how many, how many times is a CCW holder? Like, Oh, there's another excuse is what if they go crazy and they get angry at the kids and pull out? It's like, I don't think that's, but but what's going to, what's going to stop them, Cody? Like I ask people and I ask teachers this, what is going to stop you? And I point at the teacher, I go, do you own a firearm? Oh, my husband has a gun. What's going to stop you from snapping one day? Let's just say you have a bad day. You have a mental breakdown. You grab that gun. Is anything going to, anything that we're doing at this campus right now going to stop you from bringing that gun on the campus? No. So if you lose your mind, you bring that gun on campus and you start shooting people, what is the one thing that can stop you? A, you're going to either run out of bullets and somebody's going to tackle you. Police get there, right? Somebody else with a gun. It's the only thing that's going to stop you, right? We can't legislate evil out of existence, right? We can outlaw guns all we want. It's not going to stop any gun violence. It's just not. Criminals will always have a, a way. And, it, and again, it doesn't even have to be a gun. You know, I, I just said, you know, that the term active shooter doesn't have to be a firearm. It's somebody who's actively killing. Somebody brings a sword, right? Somebody brings a pocket knife. You do a lot of damage if you know what you're doing with the blade. You know, what's going to stop that person? You're going to have to go hands-on with them? Or you're going to get stabbed. <laughs> it is what it is. You know? And so, you know, I, I ask these people, you know, what's going to stop somebody from, from bringing a gun? If they want to bring a gun onto campus, what's going to stop them? They're going to get pretty far in doing it, right? That's yeah. reality. Yeah, hundred percent. I uh, yeah. To your point earlier about about physical security in schools, there's there's a lot that can be done. Not not only that, but building building that culture of of security minded individuals at schools, and you know, the small things, leaving doors open or or gates unlocked, and you know, knowing what what pre attack or threat indicators are of people that look suspicious around the school or maybe even students in the school. Um, but you can build. I, I you you alluded to it. Uh, but you can build, uh, I worked at us embassies, right. And there's some beautiful places that are very secure. And we talked about this, uh, you know, not every place has a budget. I get that. Right. Um, not every place has the resources. And one of my ideas is, and we won't, we won't get too deep into it, but, but having a federal entity that oversees this and that funds it and provides uh, training, you know, higher level training that can be, uh, monitored and, 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 and matched and, and, uh, you know, do security assessments and, and have a, just a whole kind of comprehensive plan to do this. And that would help some of these smaller school districts. Like I said, I'm from a small town, Louisiana. It, it, it was rated by the Washington post, the second poorest town in the nation a while back, a couple of years ago. And, and it's like, I think I mentioned to you, it's not exactly completely accurate because people live on the outskirts of town wealthier people live out there but it is a poor poor place and that police department does not have the asset the, the assets the resources they don't have the the cash flow the revenue in the town in general because because it's just right. you know i think the medium median income is eighteen eighteen thousand. like you can't pull tax revenue from that to provide police good pay and and good weapons but if we had someone to fund it and not just give the funds and that's the thing about this recent uh victory that both sides are claiming that they had this this uh, law out that one side's calling gun control, one side's calling a safe safe act or whatever it is. But you you know the the part with the deals with schools is like oh funding funding uh, 
school districts to do this, this, and this. Well, guarantee I've seen money spent overseas with the government yeah. and in other places where it's just given and it's very rarely monitored. We don't have the capacity to monitor. So you're going to give these, I'm not saying they're going to be crooked and steal it. I'm saying they're not going to know what to do with it. Or they might focus it in the wrong areas and have someone that can right. provide some guidance and some, some leadership, uh, you know, in, in those areas. And, and it's not always their fault, right? If you're from a small town, Louisiana, I was 18 for a Florida play. My parents were nearly 50. And I'm just saying that people from these small towns, they don't, they don't see a lot. They don't get out a lot. They get the training they get within their bubble. And, and it's just, they need help from the outside. Yeah. And, you know, and, and as schools that are, and I think we, we talked about this in your, in our last, you know, in our first attempt of this podcast was, you know, there's school districts in the middle of a city sometimes or schools in the middle of a city sometimes where there's, you know, a concrete playground and, and tall fences. And then there's some in the middle of nowhere where there's country around, like you got to be able to adapt to all these environments. And I think one entity that can help guide and, 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 uh, and, and monitor, you know, and, and support really is something that's important. Yeah. Um, no, I, I'm, I'm with you, man. And, and you know, my thoughts on that. I, I absolutely support your ideas and, uh, I'm all for it. You know, if it means that it saves a life, absolutely. I, I'm in for it. You know, and, and somebody might be listening and they're like, yeah, I come from one of those districts. We don't have a lot of money or I work in this department. We don't have a lot of resources. Man, you know, I, I told you, you don't need money and resources to train. You know, I, I talk to a lot of shooters and I remind myself this, you know, I, I fell into the whole thing. You know, I like to shoot. I like to train. Well, it's too expensive. You know, every time I pull the trigger, it's 45 cents. Yeah, I get it. It's expensive, right? Um, but you don't, you don't have to have all this ammo to train with your firearm, right? You don't have, you have to, to have all tactics this. tactics and strategy. Yeah, exactly. I, absolutely. I'm sitting there doing muscle memory. You know, when I shoot, I'm working, you know, different action. I'm moving my hand towards my, my, my holster and practicing my draw. And maybe I'm, you know, moving down a hallway or whatever after I clear my weapon, you know, I'm moving down a hallway and I, I, can, I don't even have to have a gun in my hand. You know, I'm just going through the motions. Um, school districts, small towns, I mean, you can train. You can train with two people. You can train by yourself. What if? I'm always running scenarios through my mind, not that I'm paranoid, but I'm, I'm kind of like the exception, I guess, you know, going through as a victim and, and as an officer. You know, but I'm always playing what ifs in my head, you know, and you might work at a, a small school and you're like, man, I would love to do a big exercise like you did, Rob, but I, we just can't. I get it. But what can you do? Right. You work on a campus. Can you walk around that campus and identify some some weaknesses? Absolutely. Right. Ask other people the opinion. How many how many school district officials, whether they're teachers or or administrators, that don't know their local cops or vice versa. How many local cops may be working in a small town or a big town? How many times have you stopped in and got to know the campuses, got to know the people working there? Maybe it's a cop that comes through and says, Hey man, you know, I want to talk to the principal. Hey, I was noticing, you know, that, that fence over there has a hole in it. What can we do to fix that? Pulling together some resources, right? A fence isn't going to keep somebody out either, but it's going to slow them down. You know, nothing, nothing is an absolute, but I'm sure there's something you can improve on. You can train. You can yeah. do a tabletop exercise with your, with your staff. You know, what are we going to do? Do we have a checklist and, you know, do we have 
things in place? Do we have, you know, a, 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 a uh, what I'm looking for, uh, a plan, you know, contingency. Yeah. It's uh, just the one thing about security too, when it comes to any, any type of security, but primarily physical security is, is, is always going to be a way for people to get around it. Um, you know, you can, you can adapt, make adjustments, but they're going to find, you know, a, a way around it, a loophole. There's no mm-hmm. foolproof plan to keep someone safe. There's no foolproof yeah. plan to, to eradicate evil on this, on this earth. And, and, but you got to do what you can, you know, to, 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 to mitigate as much, po- as much as possible. And, and if, if there are people that listen to this, that are teachers or in a school district that, or concerned about funding and, and you have a, a great point about not needing funding for, you know, strategy and tactics and training, right? You just get your guys together and do it. Uh, but, but uh, the federal government does have, I've helped two school districts in Louisiana uh, uh, back in the day. This is a couple of years ago, get these, these grants. So if people don't know about them, you know, you can go and Google safe school grants or something and, and apply. And, uh, and there's a lot of money out there that, it's left over. There's, you hear about the COVID funds left mm-hmm. over. You hear about the money we're given overseas, which is just heartbreaking that we're given all this money and we're not securing our schools. Um, but there, the, but but the, the federal government does put money aside. So for small districts, you know, look into it and and and, and potentially uh, pursue that. You know, if you need money to to, to yeah. at least upgrade the physical security. Like to, again, to your point that you don't need it to train, but for physical security measures, you could use that. Um. What uh? So let's, let's let's shift gears one more time right before we we head off. What, what are you What are you doing now? I mean, I, I know you're 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 in law enforcement. You're doing some some extra training. But you're about to start a podcast. Uh, yeah. I know you're on a on a pretty uh pretty cool show the other day with uh, a guy that's very well known. Um, uh, but I forgot his name. Off the top of my Seba- head. Sebastian, Sebastian Gorka. Gorka. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing about to raise awareness and and this podcast that you're starting and and where can people find you, man? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, again, I've told my story several times, right? And I don't tell my story just to tell my story. I tell my story to inspire thought. I tell my story to inspire people who might be listening to train. You know, when I go to conferences, you know, I, I, my, I have a challenge at the end of, of people in these conferences I go to, you know, are a, lot of, a lot of law enforcement and educators that are coming together. That's my passion, right? It's not about telling my story to put, a spotlight on me and I'm not about that. Right. But I will rehash a very painful story time and time again, if, if it means it inspires somebody to get off their butt and do what they need to do. Um, you know, I've really dedicated myself to that, you know, and, and so I'm taking every opportunity lately and, and a lot of doors have been opening. My, my wife's been getting on me for a long time now, you know, to get out there. And she's like, you have a voice, you have, an incredible story, you have an incredible viewpoint, you know, as a victim and as a, as a first responder who's been through this, um, you have a calling, you know, and I, and I truly believe I have a calling on my life, you know, to, to do what I'm doing. And I'm very lucky and very fortunate to be able to, but, um, yeah, I, I'm starting a podcast here soon. It's called, um, Vo- the voice of reason. Um, you can find me on social media right now. So I have a professional page on Instagram. It's uh, Rob James Young on Instagram and then uh, Rob James Young official on Facebook. And so we created those professional pages. So, I, you know, I have a landing site 
you know, I'm having a website built right now and doing some things, but yeah, just trying to be a voice out there, man. You know, I want to have some conversations. I want to talk with people. I have some very strong opinions, you know, on gun control and what really needs to happen. Um, obviously, I'm pro-Constitution and pro-Second Amendment just because I am, you know, but I want to talk to people that maybe think differently. Um, one of my things is I can't stand bullies and you're entitled to your viewpoint. And I want to provide a platform for people to come and talk and share. And you don't necessarily have to think like me to talk with me. And we can still be friends at the end of the day as long as we're cordial, right? And so, you know, hey, tell me why you think like you do, you know, and, and I, I want to have a safe place for people to have a grown up conversation, you know. Um, and that's what I'm looking forward to, man. You know, I really am. Just again, to inspire thought, you know, and hopefully enact some real change. Because the last thing I want to, you know, the last thing I want to see is another kid get killed. Man. I don't, I don't want guns to fall in the hands of the wrong people. I've dedicated my life to stop that too. But, you know, it, it's a tool at the end of the day. And I don't blame the AK-47 for my injuries that I sustained. I own AK-47s. You know, I trained with AK-47s. It's a great platform. I've always viewed it as a tool. It's a tool. You know, and, and I, I think our legislators right now are barking up the wrong tree, you know, and I have my theories on why, but it's for another topic, you know, so use my voice and my story to combat that too, you know, but I, uh, yeah, I just want to dedicate my life to do what I can. Yeah, well, it's an awesome story, and, uh, you know, you continue to bring awareness through all these different platforms, and is is uh obviously very important and you know we'll do our part to share we as in you know me and people that support us to share your story and get it out there and and, and you do have a unique experience i don't know of anyone else um that has been through one as a as a, as a kid and then now uh, doing what you do um and you've been in some very high profile uh locations talked to some high profile people you've done some high profile stuff you talked about uh, being in congress and trying to get that bill passed uh, and so I'm, uh, what I'll be getting at is I'm very appreciative of you coming on to talk to me on this small podcast yeah. that, that might grow, uh, hopefully, uh, someday and, and, and then, you know, get the word out even, even further and, you know, do what we can. So I do appreciate you coming on and, uh, and, uh, you know, sharing your story. I support you, brother. Part. I really do, man. You're, you're, you know, you're thinking outside the box and, you know, you've actually, done some legwork and I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that work. I support that work and you know, whatever I can do to help you, man, I, I put myself out there. I, listen, I, I'm a very busy man. You know, I try to make time for everybody, but I can't make time for everybody. You know, I made time for you and because I believe in what you're doing and uh, you know, I, I enjoy your vision. I enjoy your passion and uh, whatever I can do to help you, man, I'm here. Well, I appreciate that. And what I, what I gathered from, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've been following social media and from hearing from you is that you're, you're a, 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 you already know this. I don't need to tell you you're a super good dude and, 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 uh, very down to earth and very reasonable. And, uh, you know, when people, uh, kind of get out there and do things that are very high level, which I think what you're doing is very high level and what you've done is very high level. Uh, they tend to lose, um, you know, maybe some of that grounding, and and you have it, you know, and, and I think that's pretty cool, man. So, I, again, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be humble, man. I really am. I, I, I 
I'm I'm blown away at the doors that have been open, but hey, you know, call it a higher power, man. I believe, you know, God has kept his hand over me. And, um, you know, again, I, I didn't just survive this just to survive it. You know, I think it's, I think it's an opportunity and I'm trying to seize it. So, you know, yeah, buddy. Good stuff, my man. Well, man, uh, yeah, I can't thank you enough. Um, let's uh, – we'll close here. Any closing thoughts? No. Again, man, you're listening to this. You know, hopefully it inspires somebody. Um, if it inspires one person, man, it's all it's all worth it, you know. And it, as much as I enjoy, you know, talking with you, man, you know, I hope there's purpose behind it and there's a reason behind it. You know, again, I don't tell my story just to tell it. And, you know um, – it's everybody's responsibility. You know, it's the parent's responsibility to ensure something. They see something, say something. You see, you know, you see something needs to be fixed in your kid's school or, or you live next to a school. You might not even have a kid that goes there. It's, it's your responsibility. It doesn't even have to be a school. It could be anywhere. You know, um, we have to take ownership. And so I just, I want people to take ownership in, in their communities, man. I really do. And it, it does take a village, you know, it's cliche, but it's true. It takes everybody. So, yeah. Good stuff, man. All right, buddy. I appreciate it. We'll sign off now. Yeah. Rob Young. Right. And uh, if you could sit tight, I'll, I'll catch you here on the backside. Cool. right wow what a story and a journey for rob thank you rob for coming on to the podcast for those of you that appreciate rob's story and want to get the word out about securing our schools please forward this episode along and follow rob on his social media i am confident he is on the march to do great things he's a man of passion of great resolve and i'm thankful to have connected with him again thank you rob for coming on All right, as always, a few house cleaning items. Those of you interested in this line of work, law enforcement, federal law enforcement, becoming a DSS agent, global security professional, I have developed a number of resources to support you and your research, maybe your decision to pursue this career and lifestyle. I'm going to go over those now. For those of you wanting a bit more, whether it's more stories to learn more about the uh, the career field, hence tips, federal law enforcement interviews, uh, advice on becoming an effective federal law enforcement security professional. Um, and I have a Patreon membership. Um, I've talked about this before. I've only, I don't talk about it too much, but on, on my YouTube here and there lately, I've been kind of talking about it and it's getting a little bit of traction. So uh, check it out uh, for five bucks a month. You get bonus material, including early release of the podcast discounts on off the X apparel, additional short stories about my time as a DS agent, Uh, Those are stories that that didn't make the book. They might not have had enough meat to make the book, but they're good stories in themselves. Uh, I I, uh, post thought-provoking articles, uh, whether it's about being a security professional or about something, uh, uh, you know, related to global security. So check those out and a chance to be a part of virtual happy hours, sometimes with guest speakers from whether it be FBI, DEA, DS, you name it. I'm working towards all of that. Uh, We recently had a happy hour. It was a success. I think people enjoyed it. Um, There's only a few of us there. There's only, what, we had spots for 12. I think we had eight, maybe. Um, and uh, so we're, we're making progress. We're getting there. But, uh, you know, got to start somewhere. So 
Uh, I also run through some scenario-based training and more. So, you know, if, if you're looking to be a security professional, if you're in the field and you want to know how someone that has been there for 20 or so years might pursue uh, a, a resolution, you know, you can you can you can look me up and we can talk about doing some scenario-based training or some role play, etc. Uh, check it out. It's the first time I've done this. Um, you know, folks have asked for more. Uh, you've gone and bought these hats and shirts and things that you may not have wanted to just to give back. And so this is a way five bucks a month. You can come on and do some of these things. There's also different levels. Um, you can, you can take it as high as you want up to, I think 75 bucks to where we literally communicate as often as possible, do resume reviews, train, etc., to uh, get you where you need to be. It's all virtual, uh, but check it out. Patreon.com slash off the X underscore Inc. Check it out there. Uh, also, YouTube, I put out about 20 plus videos discussing life as a DSS agent, living overseas, leadership, family concerns, and so on. Go check it out. Ton of value there. Uh, I, I think there's a ton of value. I've been told there's a ton of value. Um, you know, it's me rambling on, kind of like I'm doing now, but it is still uh, a, a ton of intel there, and there's no one else putting out this intel about, especially about DS in particular, about DS diplomatic security in particular. So go check it out. Just search Cody Perron, C-O-D-Y-P-E-R-R-O-N. Facebook, join the Becoming a DSS Agent Facebook group. It is the only one like it where retired, former, and current DS special agents of all levels, you name it, highest levels, mid-level, and those that just got in, some of those that took that training with me. Damn, I sound like Joe Biden uh, whispering like that. But anyway, we won't talk about that. Ask and answer questions. They ask and answer questions. And uh, you can go and, um, and and join that group. Fill out the questions, please. Um, it's important that you do. I don't want somebody just sneaking in there and trying to just get intel on what we're doing. We try to maintain some OPSEC, uh, but there's a lot of value in that group. I have some group experts that are active and former special agents that will respond to you. You can link up. You can ping them on the side. There's all kinds of stuff you can do. So go check out that book. I'm sorry, that Facebook group, Becoming a DSS Agent. Of course, I have an Instagram page. That's where it all started. Off the X underscore Inc., where I post about DSS, global security, personal safety. More recently, almost a lot of personal safety stuff. There's a lot going on in the world. And so I discuss a lot of that. Uh, basically, it's anything security related. And again, that's off the X underscore Inc. And I should say, this is how it all started. I have a book called Agents Unknown True Stories of Life as a Special Agent in the Diplomatic Security Service. It's available on paperback, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble online, in digital format, on iBooks and Kindle. It's an audio format uh, on Audible and Apple Books. Uh, I think some of you know, if you're following my social media, that I'm writing a second edition where I will be, uh, well, well, I'm going to make a, a hardcover. I'm going to add about four to five more stories. I have some people that have been in DS for a long time, maybe a director or so that's going to write a foreword of the book, and then I will, uh, you know, publish it, hopefully at the five-year anniversary of the release of the book. The release of the book was in May of 2018, so I'm looking to get that out. But anyway, get this version, and you'll know what it's like, and then if you want to get the the uh, other version, then, you know, check that out, too, when it comes down the line, so... Anyway, follow me. My website is web is uh, codyperron.com. C-O-D-Y-P-E-R-R-O-N.com. I sell my book there, by the way. You might get a little something extra if you buy it from my website. I sell uh, some off the X hats, some t-shirts, some patches, some stickers. Social media is there. And as said, you can buy the book there. I usually throw in, once again, a little something extra. Buy directly from me. 
That's it. If you have questions, you can send them to me on any social media medium. I'm not the best on YouTube. When you write to me, is a lot of people kind of randomly writing stuff on YouTube. Uh, but if you hit me up on Instagram, uh, I check that. I check my requests pretty often. So hit me up there if you got questions. Um, if it's detailed questions like, hey, how to become a DSS agent. Look, I'm going to tell you to go look at all the content I put out. I have people pigging me left and right. And so I need you to do the research first. And then I will support you in your endeavors. And I have plenty of people that can tell you that I have had their back when it comes to this. So info at CodyPeron.com uh, is the other option. If you don't want to go to social media, if you want just to email me directly, I get back to you. Sometimes I'm slow. Ping me again if I forget. No harm, no foul. Send it to me. It's all good. Um, I'm here to support. I'm here to educate. I'm here to add value and entertain if I can. And with that said, I appreciate all of your support. Thanks again, y'all. I appreciate you. Out.